if you would please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. When's the last time you've heard a message from Ecclesiastes? Well, we're actually in uh, the midst of going through the wisdom literature with our college group and our young professionals, college group on Tuesday nights, young professionals on Friday night. We're in Job, but we are previously in Ecclesiastes. And it was the first time that I had thoroughly studied that book, and it turned out to be a challenging and encouraging study. Some of it is hard to understand. And I realize that maybe only a handful of you have ever studied it in depth, so we need to take some time to get our contextual bearings before we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, contrary to contemporary biblical studies. It was written by Solomon, and in it he is offering wisdom to his readers and his listeners, flowing from his experiences and observations about life under the sun. Solomon's own sin and his personal experiences had forced him to look at life square in the face with all of its sorrow, with all of its monotony, with all of its joy, with all of its pleasure, with all of its enigmas. And he's ready to offer us a few important observations that we might live well this life under the sun. So what I want us to do is I want us to look briefly at these observations that he has made so that we can get settled in the book of Ecclesiastes, if just for a brief moment, in order to come to our passage today. The first observation is this. There is nothing new under the sun. That was Solomon's first observation. Surely you've used that expression or at least heard that expression. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, it came from Solomon. It came from the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 9, it says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing in which it is said, see, this is new. It has been done already or been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after life is monotonous. It is repetitious on a macro level. Winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, or if you live in L.A., spring, summer and kind of not summer. Um, but it's, there's a constant repetition on the macro lever, level and on the, uh, the macro level and then on the micro level as well, right? You get up, you eat, you go to work, you come home, you go to bed. And then you wake up, you eat, you go to work, you go, come home, go to bed. And you repeat the same thing the next day. There's this repetition in life that causes Solomon to cry out. And this is his first statement in the book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There is no novelty that can break this cycle of life, that can get me beyond this cycle of life. There's a monotony to it. There's nothing new under the sun. And this is a maddening thing for Solomon. Remember, he's looking life square in the face and he wants us to look at life square in the face. The second observation alongside of that first observation is that ultimate pleasure 
ultimate satisfaction and ultimate meaning cannot be found in the things of this life. In light of the bewildering monotony of life, Solomon sought to find satisfaction and to break the cycle of despair by seeking ultimate pleasure, satisfaction, and meaning in earthly enjoyments. So what does he do? He conducts an experiment. Perhaps that ultimate meaning and satisfaction and pleasure is found in intellectual stimulus. So he sought after wisdom in knowledge. Verse 17 of chapter 1, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this is much, that this is but a striving after wind. So intellectual stimulus didn't find him that ultimate satisfaction or pleasure or meaning. What about sensual pleasure? Chapter 2, verse 1. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life I may great works and that leads us to the next thing it didn't he didn't find it in sensual pleasures he didn't find that ultimate satisfaction that ultimate meaning in life in sensual pleasures so maybe he find it in work in productivity so what does he do verse four i made great works i built houses and planted vineyards for myself i made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees i made for myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees he couldn't find this ultimate meaning and satisfaction in intellectual stimulus he couldn't find it in sensual pleasure pleasures he couldn't find it in work in building projects in productivity that couldn't do it the third observation and perhaps the most bitter of all is that death is certain and that it comes to all people. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, whether you are wise or whether you are foolish, whether you are nobility or a peasant, whether whatever you are, your earthly status and your wealth cannot impede the certainty of death. Death comes to all, irrespective of who you are or what you've done. Death does not distinguish between the wise and the foolish, between the rich and the poor, all die and perhaps most bitter is that you're quickly forgotten by the next generation so these conclusions brought solomon deep despair to the point where in chapter 2 verse 17 he says i hated life fourth this is the fourth observation solomon observed that life under the sun is full of enigmas now what is that What's an enigma? An enigma is simply something that is mysterious, puzzling, difficult to understand. And when Solomon looks at life square in the face, unflinchingly, he sees aspects of our life under the sun that are completely beyond our figuring out. How is it, Solomon asks, that people are oppressed and no one is there to comfort them? Chapter 4, verse 1. How is it that a righteous man perishes in his righteousness, and yet a wicked man is allowed to prosper and prolong his life. That's chapter 7. How is it 
that people are subject to death regardless of their social or religious status. This is chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. I'll read it to you. He, Solomon writes, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is all uh, of all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all, what? Namely, death. Doesn't matter if you're religious, irreligious. Doesn't man, matter if you keep your nose clean or if you're totally corrupt. Death comes to all people. Furthermore, chapter 9, verse 11, life is unpredictable. Chapter 9, verse 11, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. From his perspective, from this earthly perspective, you can't, there's no one-to-one formula that says, if you do it this way, this will be your outcome. If you do it this way, it will be your outcome 100% of the time. The race often goes to the swift, but what happen, What happens if the runner who's going to be the fastest, who's typically going to win, loses his way. Did you know that in this 5K race at the real adoptions thing, the actual winner, the guy who was supposed to win, who was supposed to be this cross-country coach or something, he actually lost his way. And so Aaron and Kathy came in first, and then Sergio third place. Why? What happened? Well, you, you would expect this person to win had they actually made their way through the, the course. That's not to take away from Kathy and Aaron's win. I mean, you guys are awesome. Sergio, you guys blew it up. But the reality is, is the, the race doesn't always go to the swift, right? Aaron and Kathy are swift, so is Sergio. But you, you, you get my point. A, a, a runner may trip and fall. They may get injured out of the starting blocks, pull their hamstring. The race doesn't always go to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Sometimes... Something might happen within a particular military in a particular situation where they're ambushed by a lesser army. Bread does not always go to the wise. You may have a PhD and live on the street. Nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. What Solomon is grappling with, what he what he's wrestling with is this reality that life is unpredictable. And this is not cynicism. See, a number of uh, interpreters of, of Ecclesiastes see Solomon here as nothing more than someone you might see at a local college, some sophomore year philosophy student who's going on a rant about the meaninglessness of life. That's not what Solomon is doing. This is not cynicism. These are the sober and wise reflections of a man who's been brought to look unflinchingly at the reality of life under the sun. There is monotony. There is the question of where all ultimate satisfaction can be found. It can't be found here in these finite things. Death is certain, and there are many enigmas that we cannot figure out. But that's not the whole story, is it? See, throughout Ecclesiastes, and this would be, this is the advantage of having gone through the whole book, which is I'm trying to get you up to speed here, but throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon mingles hope with despair. He mingles glimpses of clarity with moments of confusion. 
Although we cannot unravel all the riddles of life or figure out what God is doing in the world, we can know some things, and these things stabilize us in the midst of this fallen world and this life under the sun. First of all, he knows that God is sovereign over all events and all people. The familiar passage in Ecclesiastes, perhaps maybe the, the most familiar, is chapter 3. A time, there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time for everything. That's just not some fancy poetry. What Solomon is arguing is that God is sovereign over all things. And there's a time and place for everything. And he has that all worked out. And he has it worked out in such a way that you, can, you cannot figure out all the details of how he's got that worked out. So he knows God is sovereign, and under God's sovereignty, there's a time and place for everything, and he has it under control. You may not be able to understand the details of providence, but God is ruling nonetheless. But here's another big piece that Solomon understands, and this is where we get to our passage for today. Solomon also knows that God has given mankind earthly life as a gift for those who reject god and do not know him the good things of this life are pursued as ends in and of themselves the things of life food drink marriage pleasure work are pursued as that which holds ultimate satisfaction and meaning but because these things are sought as the ultimate source of lasting satisfaction in place of the creator Rather than enjoyed as temporary gifts from the creator, genuine satisfaction becomes elusive. You can't find it. If you look for the infinite in the finite, you will be disappointed how many times? Every time. A person, and this is what rattled Solomon's brain. A person can have access to the most exquisite pleasures this world has to offer and all the resources to acquire what he or she wants. But apart from God, these things will not taste the way they were meant to taste. They will turn to sand in your mouth. Chapter two, I'm sorry, chapter six, verses one through two. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind a man to whom god gives wealth possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires yet god does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them this is vanity it is a grievous evil ironically ironically throughout ecclesiastes in between solomon's observations on the enigmas and difficulties and sorrows and troubles of life, he returns multiple times to the subject of earthly enjoyment. It's incredibly ironic if you were to just immerse yourself in Ecclesiastes for several weeks, which I had the privilege to do. Although he has discovered that earthly life cannot give him ultimate satisfaction, Solomon learns that God has created life to give us what? some satisfaction and he repeats this theme several times throughout the book it's incredible how many times he repeats this theme just listen with me ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 14 says 
actually, take that back, 24, rather, chapter 2, verses 24 and following, says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat and who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to enjoy, the, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I'm not finished. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can, who can bring him to see what will be after him? I'm not finished. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I'm not done. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Intermingled throughout Solomon's hard look at life under the sun, life in all of its trouble, all of its monotony, all of its bewildering enigmas and things you can't figure out as you turn on the news and you wonder why that tragedy happened over there and didn't happen over here. Among all the sorrow and oppression and inequities is the constant refrain, listen, that earthly life is a gift to be enjoyed. Now, what's so important about the passage we're going to look at? We still haven't made it there. We're about to. We're getting there. What's so important about this passage is that up to this point, Solomon has only commended joy. He's kind of suggested it. Now he's commending it in chapter 8. He says things like, there's nothing better. Or behold, it's good and fitting. Or I commend joy. These are observations. These are suggestions, right? But in chapter 9, verse 7, Solomon becomes far more aggressive. He now commands you to enjoy life. And what's so interesting about this particular passage is that it's sandwiched in between chapter 9 verses 1 through 6 and chapter 9 verses 11 and following where Solomon grapples with the enigmas of life. Chapter 9 verses 1 through 6, death is certain. 
chapter 9, 11 and following, we've already seen life is unpredictable. How do you navigate this kind of life as a believer? How do you endure this kind of life as a believer who knows God? How do you endure life under the sun? This is Solomon's great commission. Now, if you saw the title of this message and you were wondering, well, I'm sure this has something to do with the evangelistic focus we've had the past several weeks. Let me tell you, it doesn't have anything to do with that evangelistic focus except indirectly. And we'll explain that in a moment. But this is Solomon's great commission. Notice the first word in this passage. Notice the first word. Go. Go. Does that sound like something you've heard before? Go. Life is full of enigmas and riddles and things that you will never be able to figure out this side of eternity. So here it is. Here it is. It's an urgent matter. Stop your worrying. Stop fretting about things you cannot control and you're never meant meant to figure out. Go, Christian. Go get on with living this life that God has given you. As one commentator has put it, this is great. This command is a wake-up call. There's no time to waste. Stop your complaining. Stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding over your problems. Get over your anxiety. And I would add, start enjoying life. (coughs) Brothers, sisters, what's so astonishing about this is that it's a command. It's a command. And we all know our Bibles well enough, and we know God well enough to know that to disobey a command is what? It's sin. It's a command. It's a moral imperative. Go. Go. Go and do what? What are we to go and do? This is the first thing. Savor life joyfully. That's the first thing. Verse 7. Savor life joyfully. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Find enjoyment and pleasure in eating and drinking. What a command. I'm surprised I haven't heard any amens yet. Go find joy in eating and drinking. When you are freed... From the tyranny of having to find ultimate satisfaction in food and drink. You can find some satisfaction in food and drink. And it's what was intended for you by God. Now, we also need to to take in account what he says here. He says, why? Why should you eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart? For God has already approved what you do. What does that mean? Does that mean... Whatever you do, God approves it. Whatever your heart desires, God just, boop, stamp of approval. Well, no, because that would mean that that could implicate God in approving wickedness. That's not what Solomon's referring to here. Solomon has a robust theology of creation. Let's turn back for a moment to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. As, as, and as we're turning there, it should take you a little bit of time, unless you've got those smartphones, you can do it quickly, but <clears throat> should take you a little bit of time. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you, if we went outside those doors after church today. And I asked you, what is the first command in the Bible? What would you say? You might say, 
Be fruitful and multiply. And I'd say that's a good answer. That's in Genesis 1. However, that actually, in terms of chronological sequence, that would have come after, later, because we know in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam was created first and then the woman, the command to be fruitful and multiply is given to the man and the woman. But I would give you a, a, a gold star for effort, okay? That's if, that's the first, if that was your answer to what the first command was. But let's narrow it down a little bit. Let's get into Genesis chapter 2. What was the first command given to Adam? What would you say? Be honest. What would you say? You might say or probably say, this is the first command. You shall not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just be honest with yourself. Is that the first command? Verse 16, Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The first command, or better, the first part of the first command is what? Enjoy the food that God has made for you to enjoy. The reason why many of us would have answered the first command is, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that we still are breathing the lie-tainted air that Satan introduced to our spiritual atmosphere millennia ago. The first command was to enjoy the abundant goodness of creation. This, the lie that Satan introduced to Adam and Eve was that God was keeping enjoyment from them. Chapter 3. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first attack that Satan puts on God's commandment is to flip it to turn to make God look like he is primarily a prohibitor of enjoyment. Is that how you think of God? Is that I think that's how a lot of us deep down may think of God. Many of us perhaps hear God primarily in terms of prohibitions. We simply assume the first command was not to do something because that's how we tend to think of our creator. But scripture actually shows that God is good and he is lavish in that he has created this good world for the benefit and the enjoyment of his creatures. When Solomon commands us to savor life joyfully, because God has already approved what we do, he is taking us back to creation and showing us that legitimate earthly pleasures were given to us by God for our enjoyment. God made you to need food in order to survive. And he could have done it by simply having you plug yourself into some sort of tree and to get nutrients. But he gave you what? Taste buds. He gave you taste buds so go savor life joyfully now bread and wine were staples in this society but the application is not merely to bread and wine solomon is is saying whatever you drink now when we went to ethiopia what is one of their primary staples that they drink that you will get to enjoy multiple times a day well it's coffee there's coffee ceremonies multiple times a day we would partake in them, even if we didn't want to. I mean, there it is in your face. Great coffee. 
It might be tea, it might be wine, whatever. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it with joy and with a merry heart. This is God's gift to you. And he is pleased when you enjoy and thank him for it. When you bite into that fresh Fuji apple chicken salad or that perfectly prepared filet mignon or that moist piece of peanut butter cup chocolate ripple cheesecake or that spicy salmon roll or that ripe Bartlett pear and you savor and you enjoy it and you thank God for it. He is pleased. I already can hear some objections amidst the amens, okay? Someone might be saying, but Derek, you know, we live in a society that is bent on consumption and overindulgence. How can you command us to savor food? Right? Is that is that a possible objection? You should be exhorting us to self-control and to self-denial so that we might be lights in a dark world. Well, that objection may sound spiritual, but it could actually be rooted in self-righteousness and a deficient understanding of the gospel. Let's be clear. The answer to overindulgence is not abstinence or asceticism or the rejection of God's good gifts. We know from Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, you do that, you only make things worse. You reject God's good gifts, you only make things worse. Yes, we live, let's admit it, we live and work in a society that celebrates indulgence and leverages most of its energy and resources to acquiring and consuming earthly pleasures. But as Christians, we know that this world is, though fallen, still good as christians god has not only approved what we do on the basis of creation but get this he has approved what you do on the basis of the gospel listen in christ we are declared fully righteous and free from condemnation there is no need to earn god's favor through abstaining from certain foods or rejecting rejecting legitimate earthly pleasures this is a gospel issue paul will make it a gospel issue in first timothy 4 1 through 5 so i said that this had nothing to do with our evangelistic focus but only directly it is indirectly connected is it not what kind of gospel are you giving people what kind of gospel are you giving people a gospel that frees Or a gospel that binds people to legalism and the continuation of trying to earn their favor with God in Christian dress. This is a gospel issue. Now, another objection might come, and I actually had Tim read this text for this very reason, because I anticipate this objection. Matthew 6, 25 through verse 33, we heard, you might be saying, Derek, I thought we weren't supposed to worry about food and drink. I thought we weren't supposed to worry. And I say, you're right. You're not supposed to worry about food and drink. But Jesus did not say, don't eat. And he didn't say, don't dress yourself with clothing. He commands us to not worry about such things. Why? Because you have a heavenly father who knows what you need and who has a reputation for lavishly providing for his creatures. So 
be free to seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. And I can tell you by experience, all these things are added unto you. God takes care of his people. He even will lavish his people in some ways. This is not talking about a certain amount of wealth over against some other person. This is simply about God caring for his people and giving them good things to enjoy. Jesus says, don't worry. Solomon's command is similar. Stop fretting about life and get on with living. Worry only hinders your enjoyment of this life. So savor life joyfully. Turning back to Ecclesiastes. Second, Solomon is going to tell us to celebrate life continually. Celebrate life continually. Let your garments be always white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Now, what on earth does this mean? What does this mean? In Solomon's time, white would be used, white dress would be used for celebrations. These would have been feastal garments, festal garments. The command for us to dress always in white is a command for us to live a celebratory life. Now, obviously, Solomon is not ignoring the sorrows and the difficulties of life. He has considered these issues at length in Ecclesiastes, which is why you need to immerse yourself in Ecclesiastes to get the taste of what he's saying here, which is what I've tried to do with us briefly. But for those who know the creator, who know the savior, earthly life should be characterized by celebration. Why? Because we know for certain that life ends in celebration and continues into eternity in celebration. This is a gospel issue. This is an evangelism issue. This is Solomon's great commission. You know, my wife is really good at this, and she learned it from her mom. Amy will find any excuse to celebrate life. Any excuse at all. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate half birthdays. I mean, why not? And because we've adopted, we get the joy of celebrating gotcha days, which are the days that we celebrate the day we actually got our children. Gotcha days. And we celebrate them with donuts. And then we celebrate happy birthdays with donuts. We're just eating a lot of donuts. We celebrate holidays, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Labor's Day, Memorial Day, Ethiopian Christmas, Chinese New Year, and Cinco de Mayo. Now, we don't have any Hispanics in our family. We just want an excuse to eat some good Mexican food. We like to watch the Kentucky Derby and throw a party. We like to throw a party and watch the Super Bowl. We like to throw a party and watch the NBA Finals and watch Steph Curry drain some sweet threes. We love to celebrate. I mean, we'll get cards in the mail from Amy's mom and I'll be like, did you know it was this holiday? I've never heard of this holiday. I guess we're celebrating. Let's do it. Let's go out to eat. All right. Woo. But there's more to this celebrating than just our present earthly life. Like the enjoyment of food and wine, we eat and drink. Listen, this is what ties us all together. We eat and we drink in this life in anticipation for the ultimate wedding celebration. It's a feast. It's a meal. 
there's drinking and there's eating. Do not spiritualize those realities. They are physical. When you eat and you drink and you celebrate life with other Christians, you are getting a foretaste of a coming kingdom in an ultimate wedding feast when we will be together with each other in our bridegroom for the ultimate wedding celebration. It will be lavish. It will be eating. It will be physical. It will be glorious. Chapter 19 of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to me the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah. Our Lord and God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We celebrate in this life, we celebrate this life, not because you only live once, not because YOLO. No, we celebrate in this life because life ends and eternity begins and continues in celebration. Only a Christian can live like this. Only a Christian. And if you are not a Christian today and you are here without Jesus Christ The enjoyments of this life cannot give you the satisfaction that you are looking for. Only Jesus Christ in his death on the cross for your sins can do that. And when you enter into that relationship with Jesus and you behold this world as God's gift that you can enjoy without condemnation, you will taste this life the way it was meant to be tasted. But apart from Christ... You are only headed for eternal condemnation. So I would call you today on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Your sins have been paid for on the cross if you believe in Christ. The celebration is just part of the command. As you can see here, you're probably a lot of you wondering about this. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What is that all about? Well, this statement refers to fragrant oil in the ancient Near East that was used to soften and nourish the skin. Combined with the previous statement about dressing white, Solomon is telling us to celebrate life by an appropriate care for our physical bodies and appearance. In the Bible, both wine and white clothing symbolize joy. White clothing and was the dress up clothes in the ancient Near East. And practically speaking, one commentator puts it like this. I love it. Quote, don't wear sackcloth to work, buy a white dress, splash on a dash of cologne, shampoo and rinse. See, true spirituality contra what the medieval church might have told us doesn't neglect the body or the physical appearance. When a person purposefully neglects the body or their physical appearance out of supposed devotion to God, they're actually expressing a false kind of humility that is likely grounded in legalism and the attempt to earn God's favor through asceticism or rejecting God's good, God's good gifts. Jesus himself said that if you fast, take care of your body in such a way that no one knows that you're fasting. 
right? It says that in Matthew 6. See, the Christian who is free from the need to earn God's favor is free to rightly enjoy God's good gifts and caring for the body through clothing and cologne are some of those good gifts. And if you know me at all and you're a guy, it's likely, and you wear cologne, it's likely that as I've hugged you, I've probably said, boy, you smell really good. Because see, I really, really like good smelling cologne and good smelling fragrances. And when I, we lived out in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was, I was a window cleaner out there, and I went to a client's home, and, and his wife would have us clean, have me clean the windows every six weeks, which was a little much, but hey, I was happy to take the money. And her husband was the best smelling man I'd ever smelt in my life. I just, you'd, you'd walk in the room, I was like, wow, that's really good. And, <clears throat> and asked him, finally asked him, I said, brother, he was a Christian, I said, you gotta tell me, what is this cologne you're wearing? It's amazing. And he showed it to me and it was $180 for three ounces. I said, well, that's, that's too nice. Forget that. So we are to celebrate life continually. We are to savor life joyfully. What else? Enjoy life thankfully. Enjoy life thankfully. Verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain, probably best translated fleeting life. That he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil, which you toil under the sun. Here's the command to enjoy life. Now he's broadening it out from just food and drink and celebration and clothing. This is now the enjoyment of all of life. Not only has God given us food to eat and enjoy, he has given us thousands of innocent, legitimate pleasures to enjoy in this life. A walk in a wooded park on a warm summer's evening, a long conversation with a friend, a good book, a new dress, a warm cup of tea on a chilly winter morning, a meal with your family and friends on your back patio, a long bike ride through the countryside, the gentle nuzzling of a newborn baby, the aroma of a fresh bag of coffee beans, sunflower seeds in a baseball game with your son, the sense of awe when you top out and take in the view of a, after a 10-mile hike. There are a multitude of good, wholesome, God-approved, God-given enjoyments that we as Christians can gladly receive from our Heavenly Father. Enjoy life. But that's not all that Solomon says. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. He commands not only to enjoy life, but to enjoy life with your wife. She is your companion. She is your friend. She is God's gift to you. And notice that he says, enjoy wife life with your wife, not enjoy your wife. What's interesting is that that makes a distinction between what is included here but not emphasized. What's included here is certainly the enjoyment of physical intimacy with your wife. That is included. Solomon, as we know, wrote the Song of Solomon. He wrote Proverbs chapter 5. The blessings of marital intimacy are to be enjoyed and thanked God for unashamedly but what he is emphasizing here is companionship enjoy life with your wife whom you love 
It is the companionship that grows and over years and years of marriage. It's the companionship that you begin to really value over years of years. The command here is to embrace this life and its enjoyments, not by yourself, but with your wife, with your companion. And Solomon has already talked about this in chapter 4. He says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. So enjoy life. Those of you who are married, enjoy life with your wife. Treasure that companionship. Notice the rest of the sentence. So this is why I say thankfully. It says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life that God has given you under the sun. That is your portion at which, and in your toil as you toil under the sun. The word here, vain, as I've already mentioned, is best translated, I think, here is fleeting. Earthly life is not long, but God has given it to you. And your gift in the way that you make it through your toil on this life is the enjoyment you get from life. And God's gift of marriage. It is your portion in this life. It is your gift to help you endure your toil under the sun. Receive it as a gift from God and thank him for it. Enjoy life. Thankfully. Finally, this is the last last section. Verse 10. Live life purposefully. Live life purposefully. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I love this verse. Oh, I love this verse. You know what Solomon is saying to us? Don't coast through life. Work hard. Do something. Don't meander through each day, aimless and half-hearted. Work. Don't do things halfway. Be productive. Produce things for other people. Get things done. Work, whatever it might be. Do it with your might. You, you're only here for a short time. Work hard, whatever your hand finds to do. In Christ, We are finally alive. Every facet of our being and our personhood is now filled with new spiritual energy. And this new energy should express itself in a zest for earthly life, especially in being productive with work. Again, Solomon is taking us back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where man is placed in the garden to work it and keep it before the fall. Before the fall. God made you to work, not in reaction to the fall, but prior to it. You were made to work and to do something. Men and women were made in the image of God, created to work, to exercise dominion, to produce, to create, to bring order out of chaos, to reflect the person of God by planning and building and fashioning and nurturing and instructing the next generation. Solomon's command for you is to take work seriously, whatever it is, whatever it is, whether you are a financial consultant or a mother of two, whether you are a computer programmer or a plumber, whether you are drawing up blueprints for a new building or preparing a meal for your family, whether you are operating on a blocked artery or cleaning 
in managing your busy home, whether you are lifting weights or installing new sod in your front yard, whether you are painting the bathroom or trimming the hedges, whether you are running your own business or planning a weekend trip for you and your husband, whether you are preparing a sermon or setting up chairs for a fellowship meal, whether you are sharing the gospel or sharing your money, whether you are writing a blog post or writing a book or writing an email, the point is this, don't coast through life. Work hard, exercise diligence, be intentional. In Christ, in Christ, there is legitimate pleasure and satisfaction to be found in purposeful living. Solomon exhorts you to find it. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all, finish it with me, to the glory of God. But what's the reason we should live with such might? What's the reason? Notice what he says. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, you might be going, <laughs> uh, what? That seems like a little, kind of a dour note to end on. Kind of sounds like life is short, you'll die, so work hard. Hmm, how is that encouraging? Well, in answering this question, you have to understood, understand that Solomon is not rejecting the afterlife. He knows that there's an afterlife. He's hinted at it already in his book, and he'll really affirm it. In chapters 11 and 12, there is a judgment. There is an afterlife. But what he's saying here, he's speaking strictly in terms of earthly life under the sun. He's speaking in terms of earthly life under the sun. And there's coming a day when we'll no longer be able to work and plan and think about this life. The point then is to make the most of this gift of earthly life while you are still alive. Live life purposefully. There's only a short amount of time that you have here on earth to make the most of it for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the benefit of others. Enjoy this gift of earthly life. I mean, what a text of scripture. Let me ask you, survey, how many of you are expecting this this morning? I mean, this is in the Bible. Okay, this is in the Bible. This is this is scripture. This is inspired by God. Savor life joyfully, verse 7. Celebrate life continually, verse 8. Enjoy life thankfully, verse 9. And live life purposefully. I trust that we've been encouraged by Solomon's words in this passage. But I wonder if some of us have been made a little uncomfortable by this passage. A little uncomfortable. Because you're afraid of losing sight of Jesus Christ and spiritual realities by enjoying life a little too much. Is that, is that some of us here? We're a little uncomfortable? Now, we must hold this text together. It's not the only passage in the Bible. We must hold it together with other texts that, that call us to be careful not to make earthly enjoyments an idol in which we place all of our hope for uh, satisfaction. But some of us will guard against this tendency or this danger of avoiding earthly pleasures too much through self-denial. Instead of letting earthly pleasures skew you off course, you simply deny them altogether. Okay? And, and it is true that as, although some things are lawful, as, as Paul sh- points out in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, not all things are helpful. So a Christian who has an alcoholic past may wisely set aside alcohol while recognizing it's fine for others to drink it. Or someone who's prone to watch too much television may need to put the TV away for a while. <clears throat> things that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves may be a stumbling block for some people at some times. On the whole, however... The Bible doesn't have us approach the good things of life 
this way. In fact, the New Testament warns us about false spirituality, false spirituality that says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Colossians chapter 2, verse 21. Rather, Scripture would have us receive these good gifts with thankfulness and joy. And this is very important. The pe- this passage in Ecclesiastes and this discussion is not merely about enjoying God's good gifts. It's about what constitutes genuine spirituality. What if I told you the other day I overheard some demonic teaching? Terrible demonic teaching, just just straight from the devil himself. What would you think I was referring to? You think I was referring to perhaps someone saying that Jesus isn't God, he's some exalted angel, or God isn't sovereign over all things, he's kind of let things get out of control, or that hell isn't real. Is that what you think of if I mentioned I heard some demonic teaching? How about this? This is what I heard, quote, God would be more pleased with you if you didn't get married. Or God would be more pleased with you if you didn't eat meat anymore and you just ate vegetables. You know what Paul calls that? He calls that the doctrine of demons. When you start setting up spirituality in such a way that you say no and you reject God's good gifts, and that somehow makes you more spiritual or earns favor with God, that is demonic. Sounds harmless enough, but it is actually a teaching that undermines the gospel and the goodness of the created world. To counter these dangerous ideas, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. This is it. This is the answer to that kind of teaching. Everything. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul's argument is that specifically in that passage referring to food and referring to marriage. Everything God has created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. If you reject it on some supposed idea of superior spirituality, you are teaching the doctrines of demons and that's the test paul gives us the test in first timothy 4 4 this is the test can you receive that earthly gift whatever it might be food drink marriage work music a particular relationship a particular movie can you receive it from god with thanksgiving one commentator puts it like this i found this very helpful so i just want to read it to you he says when i pray just ask yourself this Is this something that I would feel good about including in my thanksgiving? Can you thank God for it? Or would I be embarrassed to mention it to God? Am I thanking God for this pleasure or have I been enjoying it without ever giving him a second thought? When we are enjoying legitimate pleasures in a God-honoring way, it seems natural to include them in our prayers. God, thank you for this meal. God, thank you for this walk in the park. God, thank you that we can open our windows on a morning and let the breeze come through our house. God, thank you for this good music. Wow, I love it. Thank you for this. God, thank you for that movie. It was edifying. It was uplifting. It helped me think about good things. It helped me discern certain things. God, thank you. That's the test. Can you receive that good gift with thankfulness and a good conscience? That's what 
Paul would have us consider. Thanking God for a particular enjoyment is not only a godly expression and the right expression and response, but it is also the way we test to know that we can receive this in good conscience. But here's the last point. What Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses 7 through 10 is pressing upon us is this. The physical world matters. Earthly life matters. The body is good. The body matters. And if you think this is an interpretation merely rooted in the Old Testament, I want you to consider this for a moment with me. Consider this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates conclusively that God values the physical world. Jesus has risen from the dead, not spiritually, but bodily. Ponder this. The Son of God will be incarnate for all eternity. Have you ever thought about that? God has bound himself to his creation forever. And not only this, but we as believers will be someday raised from the dead with new bodies that will live forever, live forever, not in an ethereal heaven somewhere out there, but on a new earth in a sinless, uncorrupted material universe. It does not follow Listen, it does not follow that just because many people misuse God's earthly gifts and worship the creation rather than the creator, that these earthly gifts cannot be rightly used and enjoyed in worshiping the creator. This earthly life, though tainted by sin and by suffering, enigmas and difficulties, is still a gift. This creation, though fallen, is still good, as Paul has just told us in 1 Timothy 4.4. See, if you remove God from life under the sun, nothing matters. In fact, that's why Solomon opened his book by saying, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But if you view life in reference to God, everything matters, including what you eat and drink and enjoy in this life. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my heart is just overflowing at um, the thought of your goodness to us. Oh, Lord, we want to thank you in even more. God, we want our hearts to leap for joy when we see how good you are. The gospel of Jesus Christ shows us your goodness and it opens us up to this world that you've given us to enjoy. God, I pray that our conscience would be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That we would receive your good gifts, not in overindulgence, not in reckless abuse, not in thoughtlessness, but in thanksgiving for what you have given us, intending that we enjoy it. Would you make us thankful people? God, would you save us from being dull and lifeless, that our Witness might show the robustness of life in Christ. That we know that our God is good and that he has created all things. And he has given us these things to enjoy in Christ. God, I pray for your spirit to be upon us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.